So, uh, new sermon series. Uh, can't wait to uh, begin that series today. And I'll, I'll explain to you a little bit more about parables in just a few minutes. But kind of the idea is this, that uh, a parable is just a small story with a really big meaning. Small story, really big meaning. Um, and we're still going to cover uh, six verses today. Hopefully we'll have plenty of time to do that. That's, uh, we'll be in Luke chapter 14, 1 through 6. But before I do that, um, you, you just saw uh, this uh, pastoral nominating committee here. And, um, while I want to focus on the scriptures, it's always what I want to focus on as often as I get it, uh, and for as many minutes as I'm allotted every single time. And so I want to make sure we do that. Um, what I do is want to kind of acknowledge in this, okay, got this team, and there's probably a lot, a lot of angst. I got a lot of it right now. I'm going to try not to be emotional. I, I think I mean, we'll see how that goes. Um, but there are some, some questions that just come up and all this stuff. And uh, what, what I want you to hear from our team, both elders and staff, is uh, please don't end up with places where you have gaps or blanks to fill in and just fill them in without asking questions. You can email our elders at any time, elders at clcfamily.church. You can call or text 610-869-2140. Or you can go to the uh, clcfamily.church forward slash our team, and you can reach out to any staff, or you can see that elder email, or you can read all the bios. Uh, they'll be really responsive. Uh, we're going to be a church in this. And uh, here's what I'd ask from you, and this will kind of uh, lead to today's conversation and kind of help shape what I hope will be a pretty fabulous fall here, is that I want to ask that you all would be really, really unified, right? Like just really united in the confidence that the Holy Spirit is here, has been here, and has a really good plan. Okay, so this is a, a season that I certainly believe is a season that it, where it'd be really easy to kind of uh, disconnect or detach in the middle of sadness, pain, worry, frustration, all those things. I'm just going to ask that you do the opposite. On every single moment where you feel like leaning out, would you just have the courage to lean in a little bit more? You see, in Ephesians 4, I got to read this and talk about it with our elders and staff just a few weeks ago. And in Ephesians 4, we kind of get the whole picture of what God's up to. It's actually the passage that I did my graduate work on. Just love it, love it, love it. Such an important passage. But what it tells us is God gave us this church Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Those are very unique giftings. Um, but, and it says, God gave us the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers to equip the saints, that's all of us, for the work of ministry. So that's all of us, right? We got, we got work to do. In fact, the reason I am heading down there is uh, to Florida, the First Presbyterian Church of Bartow, Florida, is very specific to the fact that God called me as an apostle, just kind of an entrepreneur and a starter. And so uh, God's given us great leaders to do some of the things. But one of the things that I think is so interesting about Ephesians 4 is not that we have all these different leaders that help equip us to do the work of ministry. By the way, to equip to do the work of ministry, meaning that's all of us doing the work of ministry, not just elders, not just staff. There's this call that we all lean into this together, right? Um, but what I'm What's so interesting is what, he, what the scriptures do there is it actually gives us a, like a very prescriptive, not descriptive, let's describe it, but a very prescriptive way for us to grow in 
in our relationship with Jesus and grow as human beings, right? And so what, I, what I've seen and what I feel in my spirit, the time that I've been in the scriptures kind of wrestling through, okay, God, what do you want to say? And then, okay, are you sure that you're calling us down there? Are you, are you sure, God? I'm not asking them to guarantee that we'll be successful in it. I'm just going, God, would you just be really, really clear? But my time with the Lord, which is, you know, every day, pausing, sitting still, there's just a word that I feel like he just has placed on my heart and soul for for this church, our church that I love, right? And it's the word fullness, right? Like there is something about the season I'm just convinced is a, a real season of fullness. In fact, you, you can see throughout the world and what God's been doing, there tends to be these big moments in history where things just change and people become fully alive, right? And so that's just what I, what I see here. And it would make sense that it'd be kind of in this season. If, if you weren't aware, many of you are because you were confused by it, but uh, this past Thursday was Yom Kippur, which you, you get a day off of school, right? Hooray, Yom Kippur. But Yom Kippur always is this season. It means the Day of Atonement. You see, uh, for our Jewish brothers and sisters who have not yet been convinced that Christ is the Messiah, the Lord, the one who pays all the price, what they kind of have is kind of a stopgap each year where they you know, beg the Lord through priests and, you know, uh, Jewish leaders to go before the Lord and go, God, would you just forgive us of our sins? And they take out uh, these goats. They, one of them they slaughter and as this innocent, you know, Passover you know, kind of covering innocent goat that's slaughtered to kind of uh, to cover the sins of, of the Jewish people for a year. And then there's this other goat that they call the scapegoat that they literally just release and send it as far away as possible to take the sins as far away as possible. Now, as Christians, we know those things to be Jesus is both the sacrificial lamb or the sacrificial goat and the scapegoat. Really, really pretty neat. But it, uh, the Yom Kippur kind of marks the beginning of a new season, right? And you can actually read throughout history and see kind of the mess that happens in this uh, August to September, October realm of what just happens in the world during this season that God has established thousands of years ago. There's just wars and fighting and really messy seasons. And then there's this kind of what, what you can kind of view as this kind of this crossing over, right, into this new season, this season where God's atonement kind of covers. And I don't want to go way too far down Jewish history or tradition, but I kind of believe that's the season that the Lord has for you all. Like this kind of crossing over. The way that I've explained it is uh, I've really been reading um, uh, Deuteronomy because that's kind of the end of uh, Moses's kind of tenure with the nation of Israel. And there's like this big, beautiful blessing that Moses gives to the 12 different tribes of the nation of Israel. And so I've just been reading through that and kind of the blessing that just I'm so convinced is, you know, like God has a plan and there is a promised land. It's not going to be, I mean, it's flowing with milk and honey, but there's going to be some hard, difficult parts of that. But I just see it. I'm just convinced. You couldn't convince me otherwise is that there's just going to be the season of fullness, fullness. But in the scriptures, back to Ephesians 4, what, what the Bible tells us, what the Apostle Paul tells us on behalf of Jesus, is that the way by which we get to the fullness is actually really prescriptive, right? It first starts with diversity. Diversity. A diverse group of people. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. And what happens is God takes a diverse group of people, and the first step is actually unity. Really, really important that you get this. You do not get unity from sameness. From sameness, you get redundancy. That's it. 
unity doesn't come from sameness. Unity actually comes from diversity. And so what God does is he takes a diverse group of people and he puts them together with their first responsibility to actually become unified. You see, and then it tells us that as we become unified together, we lean in and there's this unity. What it actually tells us then is through that unity comes this maturity. Got it? Diversity leads to unity. And unity leads to maturity. And as we become more mature in Christ, what we understand is going to happen for us is that we will become more full. We'll grow into the fullness of what Christ has for each of us and who Christ has made us to be in a church, right? And so it's really, really important that the only way we get to fullness is through unity. And the only way you get to unity is actually through diversity, which leads us to kind of a season of unknowns. What are we going to do? How are we going to find the pastor? What are we going to do in the meantime? Well, God wants you to lean in into a unified kind of group of people for the sake of fullness. And what's really neat about this is the church has just learned that when, when you have differences of opinions, you know, I'm talking about modern church history, uh, the church has just learned that when you have differences of opinions, you're just supposed to keep them to yourself or wait till they bottle up and then kind of spew them out or go some little silo and find people who have the same opinion of you and then go, I mean, you can, <laughs> the movement of the local church, unfortunately, has many ways been because people have had difference of opinions that they couldn't work out, so they just took their ball and went to separate places, right? And so what I want you just to see in this that every single time you have a disagreement or don't agree with the opinion or the plan, that time is a time for you to become unified. That doesn't mean you just go, well, you know, I guess I, my, my opinion doesn't matter. No, it really does. That's actually, the, the, the diversity comes from the fact that we will not always agree on all things. In fact, we are rarely, if ever, agree on all things. So what we do is we lay down our agendas we lay down our plans, and for the sake of unity, we lean all the way in. And so, for example, let me give you one right here. Just masks right now. Masks have this—it is a, a tool of the enemy to create some real division. Vaccines, we'll put them in there, too. And again, I'm not making any political statements. These are not medical statements, right? They have this tool that the enemy can use to create real dissension and division. But here's the really neat thing. The same tool that the enemy wants to use to create dissension and division, right, is the same tool that God is actually using to create diversity and then unity. So with things like masks, we are, we're not going to agree. And you're going to have real opinions about how you should behave, about how other people should behave, and about how your kids should. Right now, in the middle of our church, there's this kind of this angst about even uh, mask and kid zone. Right now, our, our kiddos are in masks. And uh, that was the decision our staff made. And the decision was out of uh, abundance of caution and for really clear communication to go. It's just really simple. Uh, just like it is in the schools. When you show up here, if you're not vaccinated, we want you to wear a mask. But we're not, so we can't do it for everyone. And we understand you're going, no, but these are my kids. I'm responsible for my kids. I'm like, yeah, you are until you kind of do that kid check-in thing and put that sticker on them. Right? And then all of a sudden, we, we are responsible for them. Not as in their parents, but for that hour and a half, we're responsible for them, and we take that very serious. Right? And so there's just all sorts of complications around, should they be in mass, should they not? And we've heard, and you've discussed, and it's all been appropriate. It's been appropriate to air your, uh, to discuss out loud your 
frustrations are concerns. As long as you share your frustrations and concerns for the sake of unity in the church, great. But the thing that you've got to understand is Andy Stanley says it this way. You've got to decide whether or not you want to make a point or you want to make a difference. No gotcha statements. We want to make a difference. And the first difference that we get to make is we get to be a very unified church in the middle of a very divisive world. Right? And so we've uh, kind of wrestled through, is it our role? Is it not? Like, and as we kind of think about this, we're also talking to different ministry areas and going, hey, are we going to put masks back on people or are we not? And we just go going, None of us went to school to figure out mask mandates. It's so complicated, right? And so the more we prayed and wrestled through it and discussed, we kind of came back to it. We just spent 15 weeks reading through the Gospel of Luke trying to help everyone make their next right step with Jesus. Right? For 15 weeks, we're going, no, no, you can do it. We can help. The only thing you got to do is just say, God, what is it you want me to do? And just do that thing. And the problem is, is that step is not the same for all of us. And so instead of going, hey, we'll just tell you exactly what step to take, we thought, man, that actually serves as a crutch for you not to actually pray and fast and hear from God and do what he says. So the last thing we want to do as a church is just, you know, give you some checklist to follow. And you're going to hear why today, because that's just religion. And instead go, no, 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 you can do it. No, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. The Holy Spirit lives in you. The Holy Spirit knows what's best for your family. The Holy Spirit knows what's most appropriate for you to love your neighbor. So instead of us making these big, you know, proclamations from on high, here's what we've just decided. We believe God dwells with you. In the same way that I believe God has led us to some scriptures today, we believe the Holy Spirit speaks to you as well. That's one of the really interesting things. That, like at 7-Eleven, I'll, I'll go there all the time, and it's gotten to the point where they'll go, hey, will you pray for whatever it is? And we'll just pause and we'll pray, right? But every time I go, but hey, you know you don't need me to pray. So profound. You know God hears your prayers too, right? And so as we kind of have wrestled through all this, trying to go, how in the world do we get unified? And we go, well, some of the... Part, some of the responsibility is actually to push the burden of responsibility down to you so that you can discern and hear from God. And so starting next week, as a result, we're going, hey, masks are optional because we don't know what's best for you. We don't know what's best for your kids. We don't know what that experience is like at home or in the car ride trying to get them to do that. We don't know. And we're not going to be reckless, but we also go, hey, we believe the Holy Spirit dwells in you. We believe you are the primary minister to your kids. You can do it. We can help. And we believe that you're going to hear from God about how you love your neighbor as yourself better. And so these situations actually create an opportunity for us to pause and reflect and pray and hear from God and just do what he says. Hear from God and do what he says. And here's the best part of this. You're going, what if I miss it? What if I don't know? What if I think God said something, but he actually said another thing? And I'm like, oh, here's the good news. That doesn't really matter. It really doesn't. My favorite passage as it relates to trying to discern what God's doing is actually found in the beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. In the middle of his Beatitudes, he just says something so relieving, and he says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they'll see God. You see that? Not blessed are the wise, blessed are the well-educated, blessed are the well-informed, blessed are the ones who always make the right decisions, right? Blessed are the good leaders. No, no, no. He says, you want to find happiness and joy. It actually comes not from whether or not you made the right decision, but it has everything to do with the purity of your heart. 
So the challenge for you as you wrestle through this again, I got your statements, not trying to make a point, but make a difference. Hey, would you just pause as often as you can and check your heart, ask the Holy Spirit to search your heart, and then just do what he says. And you might get it wrong. You probably will at times. It's okay. Everything in our life right now is an experiment. Everything is, guys. So we'll miss it. We'll do it wrong. And it'll be okay because God says, blessed are the pure in heart. We literally can make the wrong decisions with the right motives and still find real joy and peace and blessedness in the middle of it. So I just would go, hey, let's love each other. Every time you see an opportunity for opposition to happen or disagreement to happen, would you pause in that moment and thank God for it? Because what he is doing is giving us all an opportunity to exercise our ability to take our diverse differences of opinions and lean in. Because remember, you don't get unity from sameness. So every time that happens, would you just lean in and trust God more fully and just go, God, would you speak to me? Would you give us guidance? And then with everything you have, be as courageous as you possibly can just to do what God says, right? So as we kind of sort uh, through this mass crazy world, mitigation strategies, transition of me as a pastor, you know, having other people up on stage preaching, wondering what's going on behind the scenes and not having all the information. Let me just today kind of shape where I hope this goes. And it's actually what we've been doing for the last four years. Uh, so one of the things that we talk about, kind of one of the mantras, and the bigger the church gets, the more complicated this is, is um, we try to have fewer policies and more personal conversations, right? In fact, most of the time what you'll see in any kind of organizational structure, the reason you have so many policies is because you don't actually want to have the personal conversations, right? Someone's posting something they shouldn't on social media, but instead of just sitting down and going, hey, have you thought about that? And oh, That probably isn't helpful. Instead, what you do is you go, oh, the best way is let's just, so we're not, don't make anybody uncomfortable, let's just write up this policy that says no, no conversations on social media about politics or religion or sexuality, Right? Because it's just easier to create these policies. But a lot of times those policies actually take away the opportunity to actually have really genuine personal conversations. And guess where unity comes from? Personal conversations. And so what I want you to see today, and if there's anything I can leave with you in terms of how I certainly hope things go here, that what I hope is that we would hold very, very loosely to our policies, hold very, very loosely to our procedures, hold very, very loosely to our programs, all loosely, and hold really, really loosely to our plans. See all those P's? Yep, there they are. Hold loosely to policies, hold loose procedures, hold loose programs, hold loose plans, and instead, instead, hear me, guys, and what challenge you to hold tightly to is actually people. 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 You got it? Not policies, not plans, not programs, not procedures, but people. Here's a simpler way to, to kind of think about this, and I would offer this uh, if you've got kids in the home to think about it this way as well. Um, while rules are really, really good guardrails, at the highest priority, it can't be the rules. It's got to be the relationships. It can't be the rules. It's got to be the relationships. And here's where that's complicated, is in the middle of a world that's chaotic. Chaotic, you would just like to have some semblance of normal and control. And so what we do is we lean in and focus on our rules. 
And you know this. We know this because we look at some of the silly rules that are out there. Like, you've thought about it, and even the mask. Wait, wait, I got to, okay, so I come to a restaurant, and I'm in the lobby, and I have to have the mask on. Then they take me to the table, and then I can go sit down. But as soon as I take it down, I can now take it off in the middle of this. Oh, but then I got to put it back on when I go to the bathroom, right? You're going, well, is that, only, is that the only time COVID works, right? So you wrestled through all the stuff that just doesn't make a lot of sense. And the reason is like, oh, but it's just because we need some rules to find some comfort. And I'd go, in this season, would we not care as much about the rules and instead care a lot more about the relationships. Relationships over rules. I'm not saying you shouldn't have rules. I'm saying those things, I'm just going, even as you discipline your kids, it can't be just about the rules that are breaking. It's about the relationships that are being broken as a result of the loss of trust. Right? So we gotta, we got to love and focus on relationships over rules. And the reason I like to tell you that is because that's actually what the passage is going to show us today. Such a good gift. You see, there's going to be this, um, this contrast between these religious people, Pharisees and what, what are called the scribes. And really neat about this is uh, the works of Josephus actually talk about like the number of Pharisees. Those are religious people, really religious people, really good at the religion that kind of were in the first century. And you, in my mind, I thought it was like hundreds of thousands because they showing up in the scriptures over and over again. Everywhere Jesus walks, there's these religious people. There's only about 6,000 walking the face of the earth at that time. And so you got Pharisees, and basically Pharisees were just church people. They had real jobs. They weren't like professional Jews. They were just church people, right? They were just church people, and they kind of followed what would have been considered a ruler, a teacher, or a scribe, which would be kind of like the professional Christians. Like, so in this sense, you would be the Pharisees, and I would be the scribe. Got it? That, that's just kind of how the world happened. And what we saw is Jesus keeps going place to place. He sets his eyes on Jerusalem because he's going to tackle the biggest issues that are facing people, which is religion and government. The big, the, the big two that Jesus is heading to Jerusalem to literally overthrow and die and resurrect kingdom living, right? And so he's heading that way. And as he heads that way, he's talking to his disciples and these religious people keep popping up. And so we're going to see lots of religious people today and he's going to be at the home of one of the teachers of these religious people and so what you're going to see is this contrast between these people who hold things so tightly so you could see them like seething with these clenched fists right just holding things so tightly and then you're going to see the contrast of jesus who's just holding things so loosely just holding it so loosely right so welcoming and so there's just going to be the sharp sharp contrast and what this begins is this kind of the season for us over the next six seven weeks where we'll just be uh, paying attention to the, the the things that jesus is teaching and the way that he teaches small blip today but larger blip as we move forward is through what's called a parable and i told you a parable is just a really small story with a really really big meaning really small story really big big idea if you um add up matthew mark and luke those are three of the gospels they're all written by biographers of Jesus' life uh, about Jesus, right? So Matthew, Mark, Luke walked with Christians, walked with Jews, and they wrote these Gospels. 35% of everything they write about in their Gospels is actually a parable. The parables kind of range from 1 to 22 verses in the Scriptures. Small story, big idea, right? 1 to 22 verses in that, and, uh, and uh, 35% of Jesus' teaching is in parables. Now, here's what's really neat two-thirds of all of Jesus' parables are in Luke. 
So there's some crazy ones, and I can't wait for Gary and Christian and Ben and others to teach you on these things. We're going to stay in the Gospel of Luke, and I mean, they're, they're, <laughs> they're really some pretty messed up, confusing parables. And so two-thirds on there. Now what's really, really neat is um, 18 of the parables, 18 of the parables that you know from Jesus, prodigal son, lost sheep, all these ones, they only show up in Luke's Gospel. So while we'd call Matthew, Mark, and Luke kind of synoptic Gospels, they all kind of cover the same timeline and kind of the same stories. This one that we're paying attention to, Luke, Dr. Luke, investigative journalist Luke, adds 18 that are not found anywhere else. So really, really neat. And for the most part, all these parables, almost exclusively, are all anonymous. They don't, like, give names. Except for one, Luke uh, chapter 16, you see one with an actual name, but they're just, just anonymous people. And the reason being, and I've shared this with you before, but I want to make sure you understand as we begin looking at parables over the next several weeks. The reason being is Jesus is brilliant and wise. Just brilliant. And he knows human nature better than we do. You know why? Because he created us. He created all the things. That's why I love the scriptures. You know, sociologists and psychologists are really bright and getting some really good information. But they're all just now making, uh, giving us awareness to what the scriptures have already showed, right? And so Jesus understands human nature and understands you particularly and me. And he knows that we're not very good at constructive criticism. Like, you know, if someone just walks up to you and goes, can I offer you some constructive criticism? No, if that ever happens to you, it never happens to me. Never, never, ever, right? Like, when, they, when that question is asked, I don't, like, I've always thought, can I say no? Can I, you know, so just think about what kind of pops up in that constructive criticism, right? There is this, even if they're 100% correct, when that happens, particularly if it's your spouse, right? You just, you get this real big guard up and you are automatically defensive. Even if they offer you some constructive criticism of stuff that you actually agree with, in that moment, you do not right? And so he just knows that about our human nature that we just, the minute that comes up and whenever there's like direct correction, there's just this, this whole, you know, armor that goes on us. And so Jesus being brilliant really wants you to understand what he's teaching, right? So Luke tells us that he gives us the gospel of Luke so that we can be certain of the things that were taught. And that's Jesus. And Jesus' objective in this is for you to understand what he's teaching. It may seem like that's not as objective because sometimes it's a little confusing, but he wants you to understand what he's teaching. He wants you to understand what he's communicating in this. And so what Jesus does is he tells in stories, stories so that we don't have this defense mechanism come up that we can just be casual observers of the story. Small story, big meaning. And then, then, somewhere along the way, as you start to grasp the story, you start to see yourself in the story, and that's where you get some real awareness. So most of them are anonymous because the whole goal of a parable is not just to gain new learning, gain new understanding, but actually to better understand who you are and who God is. Right? And so in almost every parable, there's some questions you probably should ask, and here's a couple of them. Like, what does the parable teach about God and his kingdom? Really, really important. So, okay, Jesus is telling a story. What does this story teach about God and the kingdom? And in light of that, what does this story teach about me? Another one that's probably pretty interesting is, what question is this parable answering? Right? What question is it answering? What I think is always really important, like, what's the punchline? Like, what, how does it close? What is the big thing at the end? Really, really important there. Um, another thing, I think it's really important that you go, what, what were the original hearers? 
have heard at that moment? Like a lot of agrarian uh, parables, what would they have understood in those moments? Like what? So what I tell you, the Gospels are both timeless, timely. They were timely. Jesus was speaking to a very specific context right there, and they're real people. And yet at the same time, they're timeless, meaning we can also unpack the same understanding. And so, you know, what, what the original hearers do it? And then last one, really, really important. As a result of hearing this parable, what does Jesus expect from me? Not from you in that question. Not from my spouse, not from my kids. What does Jesus expect from me? And here's the interesting thing. I'm trying to set up parables, and we're not even really going to look at one. I'm going to kind of try to make this first one a parable, but it's really not. Maybe it is, but it's not like most of the parables. So anyway, I, I hold on to all that as we move forward. But here we find ourselves in Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. And we're only covering six verses. Six verses. And it'll only take me about 55 to 60 minutes. Here goes. Luke chapter 14, verse 1. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. Okay, a couple of things to understand. Uh, this was on the Sabbath. Sabbath, really, really important day. This is the day of rest. The Sabbath, as the scripture is telling us, were given by God to us for our benefit. By God to us for our benefit. Really uh, uh, interesting that you would know this, that... Uh, when the Sabbath first comes to play, it is the greatest gift in the world. The greatest gift. Now, we actually get annoyed by it, all those kind of things, but it was the greatest gift. The reason being is the first ones that were offered this Sabbath, right, God modeled it in creation, were the Israelites after they'd been freed from slavery and bondage and captivity. So if you don't know the whole story, that's really okay. You don't have to know it for today. But basically God's people basically said, God, we're not really interested in your plans. We'll choose our own. And they said that over and over again. And they got their way. And as they got their way, what ended up meaning that they just basically became enslaved to a whole other nation. And they had to work seven days a week. Horrific, hard work. And so finally God does some, some miraculous things for the nation of Israel. He finally frees them from that captivity through some supernatural events. And then God, while they're leaving captivity and now going to be kind of heading towards this promised land, they're going to be there for a while, uh, years, decades. While he's doing that, he actually goes and he speaks to them and gives him his revelation for them. And that's where you get things like the Ten Commandment and the 600 law, additional laws that kind of show up. And what God does, one of the things he gives, he gives them the Sabbath and they would have received it as, I cannot believe this. You mean, you mean one day a week I don't have to labor and toil? Great gift. You know, what happened then is as the nation of Israel kind of grew and uh, they were like us, they're kind of bent towards progress and performance. So they started going, oh, you know, I guess I could rest today, but I could probably get a little bit more stuff done if I didn't. You know that story. I'm not going to shame you on it, but that kind of stuff. And so what ends up happening is that, uh, the, these Jewish Families start ignoring the Sabbath. Remember, God gave them the Sabbath for their enjoyment, for their pleasure, and for them to actually experience life. I would argue, if you're not experiencing the Sabbath, you're really not experiencing life. As someone who for 35, 6, 7 years did not ever experience the Sabbath. You're not experiencing Sabbath, you're definitely not experiencing life. So God gave it to them for them to enjoy. But what ends up happening is it doesn't become something about relationships or people. It becomes about rules and plans and performance, right? It becomes policy and procedure. So as they started to watch that people were not using the Sabbath correctly and they were kind of trying to go, well, this isn't really work, kind of these, um, 
the, the Jews had both the Torah, the written word of God, and then they had kind of what was called the oral Torah, kind of the, the other part of it that they kind of had these just understood and passed down rules and regulations. And so the, this oral Torah that the Jewish leaders thought, oh, they're not doing it right. And so they believe the best way to get change is to legislate change. How does that work for us, right? And so they actually came up with what was called the 39 rules of Shabbat, of the Sabbath. So they went back and looked at how God defined the Sabbath, particularly as it had to do with building the tabernacle again for a different day. And they came with all these rules they couldn't do. So it wasn't no longer just keep the Sabbath. It was here's how you keep the Sabbath. I've read it to you before. I'm going to read it to you again. Here's what all the rules are. You can't do these things. Sowing, plowing, reaping, binding, threshing, winnowing, selecting, grinding, sifting, kneading, baking, shearing sheep, bleaching, carding, dyeing, spinning, stretching material, making two loops, the beginning of sewing, threading needles, weaving, separating, tying a knot, untying a knot, sewing, tearing, trapping or hunting, slaughtering, skinning, uh, curing hides, scraping pelts, marking out a hide to make ready for cutting, cutting, riding, erasing, constructing, building, demolishing, kindling a flame, uh, carrying from a private to public domain, and vice versa, putting the finishing touches to a piece of work already begun during the Sabbath and having your expectations too high for the eagles on the Sabbath. <laughs> I added the last one, okay? I just, wanted to, I just wanted to, I want you to have a good year, right? I don't want you to get too excited too fast, okay? Those are all the rules. And so Jesus is now showing up at the rule makers and the rule followers' house. This is the scribe, this is the pastor, and his kind of, his small group, his, his you know, his church family, and it says that they are all watching. See that word? Carefully. First thing you gotta understand is you see this, you think about Jesus as being so mean towards religious people. As I tell you a lot, he comforts the afflicted and he afflicts the comfortable. Okay, so he's gonna create some affliction and some uh, awareness for religious people, but in this moment, he's showing up, really important. He's showing up at their house. He gets invited over for dinner, and he doesn't say he's too important. Right? He goes. And there you are, and, and, but we get the agenda behind, and it says they were watching him carefully. They had their oral traditions that they were following, not the Bible, not the Torah. And this kind of leads to one of the first big uh, things that the religious people are trying to figure out. Who has the authority? Where does the authority lie, right? And some of that is even what we're wrestling through as a church. Okay, Josh, if you're the senior pastor, while you're not there, who's actually responsible? Who's responsible, Right? Who, who has the authority? Trying to figure that out. So who has the authority in all this? <laughs> but I tell you, it's the really good news is the same people had authority here, the same ones that have it now. Jesus, he's a senior pastor, and he's got, he's got everything figured out. You can trust him in that, right? And so what you see here is they're trying to figure out, okay, who has the authority? Is it the oral traditions passed down? So does my scribe have the authority to tell me if I'm performing correctly or not? Who, who has the authority? But the other question that the Pharisees were always trying to figure out wasn't just who had authority. Their other question was, who peop what people should I spend time with? You see, they believed in this thing called three degrees of separation because they were so religious in their performance, all outward, such broken hearts internally. And so they would not only not hang out with a sinner, got it, someone who didn't keep the rules, but they wouldn't hang out with someone who hung out with a sinner, two degrees, or they would not actually hang out with someone who hung out with someone who hung out with a sinner. Seriously. 
So what that meant is they had a very uh, insulated culture where they didn't, ha- they didn't hang out with anyone. Remember I told you, you got to choose relationships over rules. They were not choosing that. They were choosing rules over relationships. You've got to choose people over plans and procedures and policies. They were choosing the, peop- uh, the plans and procedures and policies, right? And so the thing is, is was it even got more complicated because they were not allowed to hang out with people who hung out with people who hung out with people that were sinners. It was really important that no one ever knew about their sin. You know why? They'd have no friends, right? So Jesus gets invited to this place, and they're trying to figure out, is this guy the guy? I don't think he's the guy, but who's the one who has the authority? In that room, it wasn't Jesus. It was the scribe. And in that room, it was all the religious people, but they got to figure this out because of the three degrees of separation. They don't even know if they can be around Jesus. So all sorts of complications. So there they are, and watch this, verse 2. And behold, there is a man with dropsy. Behold, there is a man before him, who had dropsy. Got it? So dropsy, it's more of a symptom than like a diagnosis. And it uh, typically had something to do with your heart, your liver, uh, your kidneys, or your brain. And it was just this inflammation that happened for whatever the disease was. And it, it made them look really funny, like really, really swollen. And it made it impossible for them to really live a productive life. And so get this, so, so messed up. They invite Jesus, and they have this guy here right? And he's with them with Jesus. You go, oh, that's really nice. They brought him to meet Jesus. No, 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 no. They didn't choose people. They chose a pawn. Got it? And so they have this guy here, and it's really, really interesting because they would have believed that this guy probably had these ailments because he either was a sinner or hung out with a sinner or hung out with someone who hung out with a sinner or had a dad or a granddad or a great-granddad or a great-great-granddad who made this mess for him. Right? And so there is this man with this uh, obvious outward, because remember, drops, he's a, um, a symptom of something. So it was evident that this guy was broken as a result of the swelling on his body. Got it? And so here they are. Jesus is there. The scribe, that's the pastor, the rabbi's there. And the Pharisees are all in this house. They're all watching carefully. And uh, lo and behold, there is a man before him, meaning if it's around the table, right in front of him, before him, who had dropsy. While the scriptures don't tell you this, I think it's easy to imply that this was a setup. Got it? So Jesus is looking around. He's at the house. He knows they're watching carefully, and he sees it, and he recognizes that this is going to be a little complicated. And so Jesus actually goes on the offensive here. Watch what he says, verse 3. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees. See that word lawyer? That means the ones who kept the law. So this would have been the scribe, not like the guy who helped you close on your home. Got it? And so Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? So now we see what the problem is, right? They're going, ha ha, let's get Jesus here and let's get that pawn down the street. See if he can come. And they put them in front of each other. And so at this point, Jesus is sitting in the room. Everybody's watching carefully. And, uh, Jesus knows that what they're wrestling through in this moment is either he's God and compassionate and he has all the power and he's going to care for this man because Jesus is going to choose relationship over rules. But if he does that, we'll now get to catch him in dishonoring what they would call their Torah. That's actually the oral traditions, not the actual scriptures, but dishonoring that. So at this point, Jesus is either going to be someone who is mean-spirited, hateful, right? 
and not anything like the attributes of who God should be, or he's actually going to break the rules that they thought of the God's own words. Again, they weren't God's words. They were passed down oral traditions. But when all that gets murky and you have all these policies and procedures, it to them looked like that was God's word. And so he is stuck in this conundrum. So he's sitting there. And instead of waiting for them to ask the question, he decides that he would just go ahead and call it out. By the way, what I have found that's really helpful in, um, in conflict management. A couple of nice tools I want I won't get to do this much anymore with you. So a couple really nice tools. It's really, really important for the sake of unity that you somehow move the problem from you versus me or me versus you. It's not, I don't like mask. You do like mask. That's the problem, right? I don't like uh, beef. You do like beef. That's the problem, whatever it is, right? Instead of having this you versus me, it's really, really, really important that you and I get on the same side versus whatever the problem is. Not you versus me, but you and me versus whatever that problem is, and to actually articulate the problem. But the way that you articulate the problem is actually to talk about it out loud with compassion and grace. So I have found in moments of real tension, it's actually helpful to go ahead and acknowledge what that tension is. Got it? Just acknowledge it. Just acknowledge that this is awkward. Like with your parents, it's awkward. Look, I don't know whether I'm supposed to come here now, so I'm not sure if you want me to wear a mask or not. Or one of the, here's one. I don't know if we're shaking hands or hugging or, you know, knuckling, whatever that is, or doing a head nod. I don't even know. I don't even know if you want me within six feet, right? You're just wrestling through all this and trying to interpret all this stuff. I just go, it just makes more sense to ask. Hey, are we hugging? But if they say yes, be prepared to actually hug. I've learned that. It's like, oh, man, what was I thinking, you know? So, so it's really helpful to just call out the tension and wrestle through it together. That's where unity comes from. So Jesus is actually just going to call out the tension. Hey, is it lawful for, uh, to heal on the Sabbath or not? Yes or no? It's a binary question. Raise your hand if you think so. Say no if you don't, right? All that kind of stuff. Uh, I don't, but four, it says this, but they, so good, they remain silent, which is always a tale, right? So they're asking questions, and because they don't like the answers to their questions, they just don't say anything at all, right? Like, when our kids get to that point, they go from, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. Like, yeah, you do. You know exactly why your brother has a black eye, right? I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And then all of a sudden, we ask more of a pointed question. Hey, did you take that fist of yours and do this right here and I hit him in the face, right? And this is all hypothetical. That really hasn't happened in my house, right? And then that's where they just kind of clam up and shut down. You're like, aha, okay, now I know the answer, right? And so they remained silent. Then he took him, watch this, I love this, and healed him and sent him away. There's two really great things here that you see Jesus' compassion. The first one, he just healed him. Wasn't supposed to write the 39 rules. I promise you that falls in the, the bad laws of Shabbat. That one right there does. And he heals him completely. Heals him. It just heals him. He asks the question. They don't answer. And he goes, okay, Africa Jesus, there you go. You're done. Right? Just healed. Just healed. In that moment, like just this, this profound thing, he heals him. No answers. And out of compassion, he's going, yeah, I guess I could wait till tomorrow. But Jesus is going to choose relationships over rules. Yeah, I guess we could do it on Tuesday so that it, no one gets upset with it. But Jesus is going to choose people over procedures. And what you see here is this deep compassion that Jesus actually has this deep plan at that moment to change this guy's life forever. Now, I want to come back to that because I think he has the same plan for you. And he's not interested in it being next week or next month. He's interested in doing that immediately for you as well. Okay? So you see this great compassion in this moment. Another thing we'll talk about it is that, that you see a really good picture of salvation right here. What does the guy with dropsy do? How did he get it? 
He did absolutely nothing. Nothing. He was actually sitting there awkwardly going, why are we talking about this? I don't know. He was literally just looking at the floor. That was his role in his healing. It was his role in his healing. Did he repent? Did he, literally, he's just sitting there. And so you see this moment. But that's just one part of the compassion. You see what it says at the end? And Jesus sent him away. So kind to him. He's like, you don't want to be in this house, bro. Right? Like, he's like, oh, my goodness, this is a really awkward house, and you're, gonna, you're not going to be here. So Jesus heals him, and he goes, you can go now. And the reality is because Jesus understands what's happening. He was just a pawn in the deal. So Jesus is going, I'm going I'm to respond because I love you. Be healed and go in peace. Right? And the same way, in verse 5, it says this. He's asked the question. No one's speaking. At this point, the Pharisees and the scribes have not even spoke yet. This is not a dialogue. It's just Jesus. And what she says, after that, he now heals him. <laughs> and it says, but they remained, remained, meaning they still haven't said anything. They remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away in verse 5. And he said to them, which of you, this is kind of the parable piece, right? Having a son or an ox, <laughs> that's so funny, a son or an ox. Okay, those are equal. Let's figure it out, right? A son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day and will not immediately pull him out. So he goes, okay, okay, look, you need to understand this because you're so caught up in your rules and your procedures and your policies and your plans that you've forgotten about the actual person and the relationship, right? And so Jesus is actually going to dial this back to a place that maybe they can have some self-awareness. Okay, okay, you're not going to answer the question. Okay, let's just take this personally then. Let's take it personally. Now, if you, you had a relationship with your son and he were to fall into a well, and Lassie comes and goes, the boy's in the well. And you go, show me Lassie. Where is it, right? Or Flipper. That's basically the same story. If you remember. Flipper and Lassie are the same story, right? I uh, just lost uh, half the room. But sorry about that. If you're under the age of 35, you're like, I don't really know. Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. That's what you want to say. Yeah, so anyway, so uh, <laughs> there's a boy in the well. He goes, how many of you are going to go, oh, well, can't do it. It's the Sabbath. I'll get to him tomorrow. Right? So he's going, hey, could you just, could you just see this not as a rule or a policy or a procedure, right? Could we move past the arguments about masks and see it about people? Could we have compassion on people that are really, really struggling and fearful? And can we have some compassion for people who are just ready to get on with their lives? Right? Instead of making it about whether or not they like the same thing you do, could you move past that and actually see them as a real human being. You understand that's where evil comes from. It's when you take a person and make them a thing. Right? At any level, at any place, when you now deduce a person to less than a person and you take their soul away and you treat them like an animal, then all of a sudden it makes sense that you can hunt them. Or you could lethally inject them. Or you could abort them. Right? The minute you take away the soul, this is what happens. So he's going, okay, let's make this more about the soul. This is not just a plan or a policy. The biggest ramifications of this aren't that you don't get your way or you do get your way. The biggest ramifications is there are consequences for real people who care about these things. Right? And so he says, okay, let me help you. Let me get it in here. Okay, let's talk about it. Which of you having a son or an ox that is falling into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? you could start seeing that person as a person, as a real human with a soul, one that God loves and cherishes, right? If you could see their story the way that God sees their story, how would you respond? 
And how many days would it take? If you can literally see the hunger happening in more than half of our world right now. Like, literally kids are starving to death. But could you not, could you see them as a real human soul? If you could see that person that's going through that horrific divorce, and maybe it's their own decisions. Okay, if you can see them with the real pain that's there, you see that the problem for us, and we're going to live here forever, is we're just going to stay in the messy middle, guys. It'd be a lot easier if we just leaned all the way left or all the way right. Because then we got a vacuum of people who agree with all the same stuff, and then whatever decision we make is just easy. That will never be this church. That will never be this leadership, right? You lean into the messy middle and you acknowledge that there are nuances and complications and nothing fits in a perfect box. And so instead of trying to make rules to kind of, you know, make like this long algorithm or computer program, you just lean in and go, this isn't about those things. It's about that human I'm looking at right now. So Jesus tells these guys, they go, can't you just see it from these eyes? Instead of you seething with your clenched fist, can't you just see it with an open fist? That's a real person. Can't you just see it like it's your own son or it's your own work day? Can't you just do that? Verse 6. And they could not reply to these things. They could not reply to these things. Really interesting term. They were not capable of replying to these things. What does that mean? What do you think about it for a second? What does that mean? They couldn't do it because they knew they were wrong. They couldn't do it because they were afraid that they were going to get embarrassed. They couldn't do it because they don't really know the answer. Why could they not do these things? This is really, really important that you get this. My opinion, just that, is they were too far down the road. They had already lost sight of these people as people. They had already lost sight of these relationships. They were not even capable of seeing that void, that situation from that perspective. The guy with the dropsy was a pawn, not a person. And so this is really, really good news. If you are tormented, and struggling by the nuances of relationships and what to do and how to do it. I praise God for that. I praise God if you were just when I don't know what to do because I can see where it could hurt these people and I can see where this can be complicated and I can see, like you, you get that, we're going, that doesn't make sense, we can't do that and you just live in this world and you just want to push it, push it, push it and just make a decision. If you find the nuance and the tension in this, that's a really good thing because you are not a sociopath. Seriously. Right? Your soul understands the complications of this world that's around us. So look, you're going to have some real issues about how things are done and how things are decided. And it's going to be complicated. But if you can lean in and go, no, 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 we're not going to, we're not going to make all of our stuff about the plans or procedures or even the programs we like around here. Instead, we're just going to make it about the people. If I have one last parting thing to offer you, is that would you not get caught up with just the programs that you like and the plans that we've made. But would you get caught up in the fact that there are 80,000 people within 10 miles of this church who have no idea that Jesus loves them? Listen, guys, they are on a collision course with weeping and gnashing of teeth. Could you get caught up in that, that there are people that God loves so much that God has decided that he's going to use your light to shine before them, that they're going to see your good work and their response, that they're going to glorify them in heaven. Could you get caught up in the fact that we have these strategic partners that are on the front lines? They're right now in Urban Promise. I got 
kids coming to the after-school program who are losing their siblings to warfare in their streets. Now, there are people showing up at Lighthouse right now because they literally don't have any food. The school meal and this meal is what they get. You get caught up in those things. Like, could that be what happens here? Is we look, don't think about all the ways that we do the things to be neat and have the good plans, but could we just be moved with compassion for the people that God has compassion for? If you do that, if you just do that, this church will be all right. Because all of your responses to stewardship will be out of love and compassion. What you hear me say often, and you're going to see it in a couple weeks when they teach you on the prodigal son, people always return to the last place they felt loved. Right, So we have work to do right now, tilling the land, because two years from now, some of these people are going to hit the worst crises in their life. And they're going to decide whether or not there's any hope or whether it's time just to, to absolutely numb themselves from it. And then they're going to remember that there is a place that loved them, and they're just going to show up. We are doing work right now that won't have a return for another decade. But if you can remember that there's people over on the other side, and we go, no, it's not about our rules. It's not about our regulations. Hear me this. And it's not about our rights. The God of the universe surrendered all of his rights. So God, rich in mercy and love, has decided that he wants to bring healing to every single broken person in our community. And for some crazy reason, he's decided that his method for that is actually to empower you with his spirit. So, it says this. And they cannot reply to these things. I would beg you to reply to these things. I would beg you to reply to these things. Reply to these things. Reply to what's urgent and what's right in front of us. Reply to the immediate. Like, would you do that? And here's the greatest gift of it all, and I just want you to hear this as the band comes up. That's exactly what Jesus is doing right now with you. If you're brand new to this gospel thing, don't understand it. What Jesus has seen, he goes, he can care about all the other stuff, but right the second, he sees the man with drops in, he goes, I'm bringing healing. Right the second, what he sees is someone in this room, online, out in the parking lot, who has never, ever come to the conclusion that they are loved and that God has a plan for them. And remember, the dropsy guy did nothing. He did nothing. He just happened to be in the right place, right? That was it. And perhaps right now, you just happen to be at the right place. And Jesus is looking at you going, I can give you absolute healing. I can give you absolute healing. This is what the scriptures say. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord is healed. Meaning, if you can call Jesus boss, if you can go, I'm not going to choose my plans and procedures. I'm going to choose you, Jesus. I'm going to choose my relationship with you. I'm going to trust you with the rest. The Bible says you're saved. You're saved. Like you are plucked out of darkness and despair and you are put on the journey of light and purpose. And that literally just starts with you going, Jesus, you chose a relationship with me. I'm just going to receive that and respond. I'm going to call you boss. I'm going to invite you in every part of my life. I'm going to acknowledge that I have messed up my own life. The Bible tells us for the wages of our sin is death, absolute destruction. But the gift of God, the relationship, is that he paid the price to invite you into eternal life and into heaven and it starts now so as we kind of prepare our hearts to sing the last song we just sang don't need a new song we don't need a new song guys we just need to mean the song that we're singing and as we as we pray our hearts i just want to give some of you the opportunity right in the second to just respond and go jesus i'm going to choose you i'm going to call you lord so right where you are i'm not going to even have you bow your head you're not going to stand up you're not going to do these things all you got to do is respond to the media jesus says you're healed stand up and go 
And right now, Jesus is going, you want healing. Acknowledge that you can't fix you, that you need a Savior, and that acknowledge that you want Jesus as your Savior and your boss and your friend. Just tell him that, Jesus, I need a Savior because I'm broken. You can say it to him right now. I'm broken. I need a Savior, which implies that you can't save yourself, right? I need a Savior. But not only do I need a Savior, I need a Lord. I need a boss. And I need a friend. So call him Savior. Acknowledge your brokenness. Call him Lord, that you want him to lead your life, and ask him to be your friend. And immediately Jesus is telling you, and going, done. You're in, we're in, let's get to work. That's it, guys. That's it. That's the whole gospel. Just responding to a Savior who's paid the price for you immediately. So, as we sing, would you now take these words and actually mean them? We don't need a new song. We need to mean the song we're already singing. So, I'm going to give you some practice in that. So would you stand with me as we sing the same song again with pure heart?
Um, as you're still standing, I just would love the privilege of just praying over each of you as we kind of wrap up. And I certainly hope to see you this Wednesday night at Cal. We'll be there. Show up for a meal at 5.30. Classes at 6.30 or next week. And be and looking forward to the reception and saying goodbye to you. And um, looking forward to connecting one more time. So can I just pray for you as we close? Um, Jesus. Man, Lord, I love this church and I love these people. And I am so convinced that, God, this move of obedience is going to be followed by just supernatural, miraculous, Holy Spirit-infused power in this community, in this church, and in these folks. So, God, I just pray. You know, God, I pray that you would grant each one of them, every single person hearing this right now, God, would you give them supernatural, Holy Spirit-led wisdom. Lord, the rest them through how to choose uh, relationships and people. And God, we're asking, I'm asking, I am pleading, and I'm declaring, Lord, that you are the author of wisdom and you give it out generously. So, God, would you pour out your wisdom on your people, Lord? Would you just give them supernatural wisdom, God? You tell us that whoever asks for it, you grant it. So, God, would you give them supernatural wisdom, Lord? And Oh, Lord, would you also give them supernatural courage? Just ounces of it at a time, God, to go and love and serve people. Not plans, not programs, but people, God. Would you give them supernatural courage to actually let their light shine before man? God, would you give them supernatural courage, Lord, to acknowledge you before man? God, so would you give them supernatural wisdom to know how to serve you, serve others, and then supernatural courage, God, to do that. How would you do that, Lord? And then, God, specifically, would you give every single one of us a clean and pure heart? God, would you purify our hearts right now? Would you allow us to be moved with compassion for sheep without a shepherd? Would you give us a pure heart, Lord? Would you create in us a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in us? And then, God, would you restore unto each of us, God, the the joy of your salvation? So, God, as you give us that clean, pure heart, even today, God, and as we make decisions with purified hearts and courage, Lord, would, would you do what your scriptures say, God? Would we see you? Like God, as it says, blessed appear in heart, for they will see you, God. I just pray, Lord, that these people who I love and you love, God, would you give them pure hearts, and as a result of their pure hearts, would they see you? And I'm not talking about next month, next decade. I'm talking about, God, with their pure heart that you give them today, open their eyes to see you at work. So, God, would every single one of us, God, see you today? Would we see your work and your might and your love and compassion immediately today, God? The same way that man with Jopsy was able to look at Jesus, God, will we be able to see you as a result of the purified hearts you've given us? Would you sustain us? Would you bring us peace and hope? And God, would you unite us so that we can mature in you and live in the fullness of what you have for us. And I pray these things in your perfect name, Jesus. Amen. Love you guys. Be well. Be safe. And hopefully I'll see you on Wednesday night. I will.